I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the latest with NATO and how it relates to Ukraine, we have with us Max Bergman, who's the director of our Europe program at CSIS. This is Max's second time on the podcast. He's new at CSIS, and we're so happy to have him here. And we have Pierre Morcos, who's a visiting fellow in our Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program. Pierre, it's your first time on the podcast. Thanks for being with us, both of you. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. I want to get right into it. Sweden and Finland have both formally requested to join NATO Before we talk about the obstacles, let's talk about what this would mean for the alliance. I mean, Finland is clearly one of Europe's most powerful militaries, so it's a net plus for the alliance. But what does this what does this mean? Well, I think it's it's a huge net net plus for the alliance because, you know, there was a degree of strategic ambiguity when it came to Sweden and Finland about what the United States would do what NATO would do, what Europe would do in the event of a conflict. Now, there's a mutual defense clause within the, the European Union, but there's not much meat to that bone. And I think this just sort of creates a degree of stability. It enables increased planning. Much of this was already happening after 2014, after Russia invaded Ukraine. There's a lot of increase in, in Nordic, Baltic communication and cooperation with NATO. Sweden did a lot to try to increase its its defense relationship with the United States. There was more defense acquisitions, Sweden buying Patriot, Finland buying JASM missiles and now F-35s. So I think there, a lot of this has been in train. So when people sort of say, oh, this is a, a rash decision being made, you know, because of the war, it's no, this, this has been building. So I think this means a lot for the alliance. It means a lot for the North in terms of coordination. But maybe just a final point, I think this means a lot, you know, for the countries, for Sweden and Finland. And I think we can sort of underestimate the impact this will have on on kind of Swedish strategic culture in particular, where 200 years of of effective neutrality, where, you know, they were fighting wars constantly previously. And then now they are joining a military alliance for the first time in, in more than 200 years. So I think that's incredibly significant and real, really significant for Finland as well. You know, they have been prepared to fight a war with Russia for a long time. They didn't take the peace dividend that many European countries did after the end of the Cold War. But I, so I think they, in particular, Finland in particular, will bring a lot to the alliance in terms of capabilities and also knowledge and understanding of Russian tactics, uh, techniques, and procedures. Pierre? Well, I, w- I would only add that it is indeed a historic decision for both countries. Only a few years ago, only one third of the population of Sweden and Finland were in favor of joining NATO, and now a vast majority of them are in favor of joining the alliance simply because of the strategic shift of the war in Ukraine and the fact that it broke the security status quo in the region. It broke also the trust between these countries and and Russia. So for them, it was necessary to take such decisive step and to align strategically with NATO. What does this mean for Russia, though? Well, I think for Russia, I mean, it... (laughs) It confirms the folly and, you know, the total own goal of invading Ukraine, right? That the relationship with Finland, the neutrality, I think was really important to Russia's kind of strategic thinking about its its position, how it arrayed its military forces. Now, you know, we talk about how suddenly the, the our you know, NATO's border with Russia will grow. 
well, that impacts us, but it really impacts the Russians that now they have to think about that in terms of their own security and maybe even uh, deploying increased forces along the border. So for them, I think it's a total strategic disaster that if there is a conflict with NATO, then suddenly the Baltic is almost fully united within NATO and would represent a strategic space that would simply be cut off for them. And it's going to demonstrate to the world, frankly, when Sweden and Finland do get across that line and actually become members, you know, the folly of Russia's decision. So I, I think it, it really drives that home. Yeah, Russia doesn't exactly get a mulligan here. They can't walk this back. I mean, this is out of the box. Yeah, it's out of the box. The, the train has left the station. So Russia could not necessarily uh, manage to influence the process. What has been quite interesting has been the reaction of the Russian authorities since the formal application has been sent to NATO. The president of Finland has called Vladimir Putin uh, last week, and the reaction of Putin was rather moderate. He explained that they had a constructive discussion and that the membership of Finland and Sweden was not posing a threat to, to Russia. So I think that Russia has acknowledged that uh, they could not influence the process and it would not be able to change this uh, membership to one NATO. Well, it's interesting. I mean, Yahoo reported that Putin actually stated, quote, as for the expansion of NATO, including through new members of the alliance, which are Finland and Sweden, Russia has no problems with these states. Does he really mean that? So I think the answer is no, <laughs> but it's a fait accompli. And I think what was happening, you saw a lot of signaling from other Russian officials prior to Finland and Sweden making this announcement that, you know, there would be real consequences, a lot of sort of nuclear signaling and swagger over, you know, the potential threats that would come to Sweden and Finland, should they make this step to try to kind of scare the population away from going going forward. But at the end of the day, now that the decision is made, there's, I think, not much the Russians can do. There's a lot of concern, I think, in Helsinki and Stockholm about this sort of interim period where they aren't a member of the alliance, but yet have sort of gained the ire of Russia. Many of us have forgotten that what happened to Montenegro in 2016 when Russia attempted a coup attempt to assassinate the leader of Montenegro to, to sort of derail their NATO prospects. But I think what's happened in the intervening six years is we've thought a lot as the United States, as, an, as the alliance both Finland and Sweden, about Russian active measures campaigns, about Russian disinformation, about other Russian efforts to kind of intervene in our politics, to subvert our political processes, and also of Russian espionage tactics and techniques of, you know, poisoning dissidents or or doing other sort of subterfuge. So I think the problem is that, that Russia is operating a much more difficult space where we're very focused. They're not going to catch us by surprise. Now, they may get creative, but I think the options that they have to kind of derail this are very little. And the last thing I think Putin wants is to kind of chest thump about how opposed he is uh, in realizing that he's got no options in, in really how to, how to push back. So let me ask you both this. There is an impediment to Finland and Sweden joining NATO, and that impediment is Turkey. Can you guys explain to me what this is all about? Turkey you know, at the end of the Ottoman Empire was referred to as the sick man of Europe. Now it's the belligerent man of Europe. What, why, why is Turkey trying to hold this up? Well, it, it came as a surprise because before the formal application was sent to, to NATO, Turkey was not opposed to having Finland and Sweden as part of NATO. And Recep Erdogan was quite ambiguous about it. But 
A few uh, weeks ago, Ankara decided to publicly oppose the accession process, notably because they have long-standing grievances towards Sweden and Finland, because uh, Stockholm and Helsinki, to a lesser extent, are supporting uh, Kurdish movements, notably the PKK, but also the YPD, which is a Kurdish militia based in Syria and Iraq. And, and clearly, Ankara is trying to leverage its veto power to have concessions from uh, Stockholm and Helsinki. And this is not really new coming from Turkey. Uh, Turkey has regularly tried to oppose uh, formal decisions and collective decisions in NATO for national gains. Uh, so it's not new. And I think that Turkey is trying to make a point, a broader point toward its NATO partners to explain that Turkey has legitimate security concerns regarding uh, Kurdish uh, activists and, and movements and try to have, have them recognized uh, at the largest uh, level. So currently there are discussions between uh, Finland, Sweden and Turkey to solve these bilateral problems. The Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, is also involved in this mediation process. So there are some optimism about uh, solving this issue, even though it is slowing down the process, which is in, in a sense concerning. Yeah, let me maybe offer a slightly less diplomatic take. I think, you know, I, I think it's incumbent upon the other uh 29 members of NATO to just move forward as fast as possible because, you know, each member has to give their approval and to move forward. You know, I think it's important that the U.S. Senate move forward and in, in Congress so the United States move forward, approve, and then we'll get to a point where if Turkey is the lone holdout, I think they then lose some leverage. I think right now Erdogan sees an opportunity to kind of extract a lot of concessions, but I think their leverage will decrease if they are the only country that is the one that is blocking this. And I think it has real implications for them also with their relationship with the European Union. So I think there's some cost to Turkey if they really drag this out. I also think this isn't just about the Kurds in Sweden and in Finland. I think this is also, you know, they are trying to get some business done with Washington, F-16s, other arms sales. And they see this as a point of leverage, as something that they can sort of, you know, use to hopefully get Washington to move faster, perhaps get some attention from President Biden. I think the U.S. needs to be a little bit careful in, in how much it's willing to sort of bargain and deal with this sort of behavior. I think we should make the Turks know that we see it kind of as sort of ridiculous that this is about moving forward to enhance NATO security. And I think that's the way it's going to be seen on the Hill in Congress. So I think Turkey could be shooting itself in the foot by trying to, you know, push the administration to move forward, perhaps on some arms sales that then get held up on the congressional side. So I, I, I think, you know, this is, this is going to be a process. Nothing is ever easy in life. You know, getting all 30 countries to agree is always go, was, you know, going to be somewhat of a challenge. But this is something that I think everyone just needs to move forward. And then, you know, we're going to have to take take this issue as it comes. And hopefully they can, we'll find ways to sort of move forward. But I, I expect progress to happen. Because I don't think Turkey is going to lay on the tracks to stop this from happening. Yeah, Pierre. Yeah, I think also President Erdogan has also domestic reasons uh, for embracing such uh, approach. He's facing a re-election next year in 2023 with fragile prospects as Turkey is facing a, a huge economic crisis with a, with a skyrocketing inflation. So for Ankara, it's also a way to rebuild its base and to gain legitimacy internally as it is facing a difficult election ahead. Let me ask you this. We're talking about the, the Kurdish opposition, the PKK, which has been labeled by the United States, Turkey and others as a terrorist organization. 
And so is all Erdogan saying the PKK terrorist groups who are in Sweden and Finland, get them out of there and, and bring them to justice? Is that what he's saying? Or is there something more to this that we don't know? Well, Ankara is asking first that uh, Finland and Sweden extradite some Kurdish activists which are hosted in these countries. But they are also asking for a decreased support to uh, the YPD I mentioned earlier, this Kurdish militia, which is based in Syria, which is actually supported by the US and other Western countries in the fight against uh, ISIS. So this uh, grievance is not, not, not only addressed to Sweden and Finland, it's addressed to the US and other NATO allies more broadly. So I think that's the, the larger problem Turkey is trying to, to highlight. Yeah, and let's be clear, you know, the YPDs, they were fighting ISIS. They were the ones that were being armed and equipped and, and, and going to take Raqqa. So I think there's going to be real aversion to kind of the, the measures that Turkey is talking about. I also think there's a real problem for a country like Sweden and Finland with democracy, with rules, uh, with rule of law. And so Turkey may say, you need to extradite these people because they're terrorists. And Sweden will say, okay, well, show us the evidence that they're terrorists. And then Turkey doesn't have the evidence that they're terrorists. They're asserting that certain leaders and certain uh, other people that may have had to flee Turkey then you know, represent threats to the state, but don't actually have the kind of evidence that would stand up in, in the Swedish court system or the Finnish court system. So one of the dilemmas here, and this has been a dilemma in our bilateral relations at times with the Turks, is that sometimes they are not receptive to the fact that we have rule of law and can't just make certain unilateral decisions because people in our country, citizens, are then protected by, by certain rules and procedures. So some of this is just not negotiable and, and isn't going to result in kind of a, a clear compromise. And so that leads to some concern about, about you know, Erdogan really drawing a line in the sand that then cannot be met. So I think there is some concern about how strong Turkey will be in holding out. But I think that's why all 29 other NATO members need to move forward with the session process as, as fast as possible. Now, Turkey, of course, is Europe's second most powerful military, and it's an important member of the alliance. So if they insist on this, which seems like they're staying the course, what can the rest of the membership of NATO do to bring Sweden and Finland in? Don't they need Turkey to do that? Yeah, I mean, we're we're going to need Turkey here. And, and again, I think we shouldn't necessarily jump ahead to the doomsday scenario of what happens if if Turkey just, you know, if Erdogan just says, you know, over my dead body. I think we are in a situation where, you know, there I think there's some leeway. I think there's been some bad signals. I think there's been some mixed signals. There's been some positive signals. I think a lot of this is just good old fashioned diplomacy will hopefully get this through. I also think it's in Erdogan's interest to not fully anger the NATO alliance and to be that bad of a NATO ally. You know, and Turkey has been you know, positive in its arming and equipping of Ukraine. And we do have a real interest in keeping the Turks in NATO. And so I think, you know, I at the end of the day, if Turkey, I think, will hopefully see the light and will be, you know, recognize the value of the NATO alliance to itself, because if it is going to take positions that are totally against the, the, the interests of the other 29 member states and potentially 32 member states, 
I think that will blow back on them in a way that Erdogan's not going to want. And as Pierre mentioned, they're in a tough economic situation and you don't want to have relations with the United States and the West. I think there is some, you know, you can play that up for domestic reasons, but there's also an interest in maintaining investment, maintaining good economic relations as we're in this sort of tough economic period. Are there other countries that the West wants to bring into NATO besides Sweden and Finland? And what does it mean for Ukraine's potential going forward joining NATO? Well, for the moment, uh, there are three formal candidates to NATO, uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Ukraine and Georgia. Bosnia-Herzegovina has for the moment uh, a process underway uh, with NATO and NATO is helping this country to, to build its army, to strengthen its institutions, but it's clearly a long path toward membership. And when it comes to Ukraine and Georgia, the, the main problem is that uh, part of their countries are occupied by, uh, by Russia. So they are not in a position to, to formally join NATO because if so, they would be covered by Article 5 and, and collective defense and it would, wouldn't be feasible in practice. So that's the whole problem, the whole dilemma of Georgia and, and Ukraine. Uh, they are willing to join NATO, but not in, in a position to, to do it. Just to add, I think this is part of the reason why the notion that Russia invaded Ukraine because of the potential for NATO membership was completely absurd because Russia, in effect, had already blocked Ukraine's potential membership of NATO by invading the country in 2014 and occupying Ukrainian lands, which then would have meant that Ukraine's at war with Russia, then that means NATO's at war with Russia. And that was not going to be in the cards. And so I think a big question going forward is how does the conflict with Russia end? Does it end? Are we in a new frozen conflict that then prevents Ukraine um, from not just joining NATO, but potentially the EU? Because if it doesn't control its territory, then it's going to be really hard for it to then join the alliance or or the EU. So I think this is what one of the factors that is going to really motivate Ukraine to keep fighting and try to take back as much of the territory as they can. Gentlemen, thank you very much today for helping us get to the truth of the matter on this pressing NATO issue. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for having us. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 